0: Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Well, today's uh, show is a bit of a synchronicity, albeit a somewhat grim synchronicity. Um, I had the uh, the intense experience over the last few weeks of finding out that a, uh, a good friend of mine was uh, was diagnosed with a, a very aggressive cancer uh, and had only a few weeks to live, and uh, she uh, died last week. And I was sort of around during that process, and it was a really remarkable uh, experience. I mean, on, on some level, the one of the amazing things about death is that it's so extraordinary and terrifying, and and reality shattering. Uh, for those of us who go through it, whether we're friends and family or, or the people going through it, and yet it's completely ordinary. You know, it's as ordinary as whatever, you know, taking a dump or picking your nose or whatever. I mean, it's just it's just part of, you know, it's absolutely intrinsic to reality. Uh, and so uh, it's not that I want to tell a particular story that's not so different than everybody else's. But there was a few things about this particular process that uh, that stood out for me. Uh, one is that I spoke to my friend a a day or two after she had gotten her prognosis of, you know, two to four weeks to live. And, um, she was 57 and she was incredibly clear and, uh, unafraid. Uh, it was clear to her that she had lived a good life, uh, that it was a little shocking, but she was ready, ready to go with it. She had no interest in attempting any Last-minute interventions, which weren't really suggested in this case anyway, it was it was hopeless in that sense. Uh, and her uh, grace, her ability to hold that space, to be curious about what was happening, to let the emotions rise uh, when they did, but also to continue to celebrate her uh, extraordinary number of friendships, really sparked the whole scene. So the whole scene around the deathbed, her family. Her friends, the way her time was spent, uh, how she went through her things, how she talked to people, was uh, often joyous and um, and certainly amazing. I mean, a, a life transforming experience for me. It was. I was supposed to go away on a Zen retreat actually, and I I decided to stay, and it ended up being way more sadhana than a typical Zen retreat. Um, both in terms of, of of being with her as she went through this process and, uh, and, and watching the possibilities of being in that space in an upright, aware, awake, curious, embracing, loving manner, uh, that it's no lie that, that we can do that. And now everybody who was around her, me and all the people who are around her know that that is possible given the right circumstances, obviously some health conditions, or if you get hit by a bus, you know, there's no options, but within the right circumstances, it, it is possible for ordinary people to be extraordinary in relationship to this moment that so many people fear, that so many people don't want to think about, uh, that our culture doesn't want to think about, uh, that, we, that we're that we struggling to find a way to talk about. Um, and, you know, it's, it's becoming increasingly clear in my life as I get older and people start to go that um, preparing for death, thinking about death, trying to en- encourage a healthier culture around death and dying um, is a really significant value for me at a, at a point when so many values are up in the air, when uh, so many truths are being questioned, uh, we all still die. Uh, and in my mind, it's incredibly important to a- at least attempt to die and face death and dying with uh, with grace, curiosity, awakeness, and the kinds of qualities that my that my friend manifested. Now, I do think there is a change. I do really believe, and a lot of people have talked about this, that over the last five to 10 years, there's been a, a slow but significant shift in American society towards more room for these kinds of discussions, uh, particularly among those of us who are not in a particular religious tradition. Um, uh, although Buddhism has its own kind of very interesting relationship with death and dying, a lot of uh, hospices came out of uh, uh, Zen movements and Buddhist movements, as well as Christian uh, ch- uh, churches and paths, as well. Uh, but outside of those realms, I think there's more room. There's death clubs. There's conversations. There's de- uh, meals that are organized where everybody's going to talk about death and dying. There are there's more resources. There's more writing. There's more books, um, and uh, there's you know a rise in green burial co- questioning about what kinds of burial techniques can we have? Uh, can we have open uh, you know, open pyres there's in Colorado, you can, you can be burned out in the open. Pretty cool. You know, and, you know, maybe, uh, uh, horse drowned hearses and, uh, you know, Viking funerals are just around the corner. Although Viking funerals are actually not very historically, uh, accurate, but I do believe that we're really at a, at a, at a wonderful time to go into this question, not only because it's something that American culture has long needed to do, uh, but that, um, it provides a kind of clarifying focus at a time when things are so extraordinarily unclear, uh, that we're still in bodies that our loved ones are going to pass, that we are going to pass, uh, and that it brings a certain, I don't want to say sobriety cause that just, that sounds too, just sort of flat, uh, but a certain way of grappling with our still human condition. And of course a human condition that is shared by every human being on the earth, Trump, ISIS, Putin, uh, your best friend, whatever. So I'm hoping that, uh, you know, with movies like Coco and, uh, and books like the book we're going to be talking about today that we really do start to make a shift in how we die. And indeed, the title of the book that we'll be talking about today is How to Die, An Ancient Guide to the End of Life um, by Seneca the Younger. Uh, some of you will be talking about who Seneca was and uh, his stoic philosophy and how that plays into the questions that he deals with in a very forthright manner these these are the kind of books i really love today it's small it's like a pocket book but it's got a nice cover hardback it's not very long nice big print easy to read and very intellectually satisfying it's my my kind of non-fiction book and if you're uh, if you're into the latin the latin's there and we're going to be talking with the um editor and translator of how to die james rom uh who's a uh the James Ottaway Jr. Professor of Classics at Bard College, a, a, a sadly a shrinking field in the humanities, classics. Uh, there's a great deal of, of gold in, in them, there are hills, and I'm, I'm glad he's, uh, he's still bringing it to us out here in the world. Um, he's written on Seneca and, and other features of the, uh, of the ancient world uh, before, and uh, very happy to have him on Expanding Mind. James, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Excellent. So let's just start out with a little, uh, who is Seneca? You know, he's a fascinating character. He was around with some of the most famous uh, and notorious uh, Roman emperors were, were doing their thing. Uh, well, give us a little, a little snapshot of Seneca and then maybe uh, talk about what has uh, made him enduringly fascinating for you and so many people in the, in the history of the West.
1: Yes, well Seneca was both a politician and a philosopher and that's part of what's so fascinating about him. He led the life of the mind. He studied Greek philosophy and adapted it to um for his Roman audience, specific, specifically stoicism, which was a Greek school that was imported into Rome in the 1st century AD when Seneca lived. Um, So he had his intellectual life, but then he also entered politics as a young man, uh, a 30-year-old. He became a senator under Caligula, the most notorious of the Julio-Claudian emperors, and survived to become the chief minister to Nero, who was also uh, a very problematic figure in Roman politics. And he spent 15 years by Nero's side as his advisor and chief minister. So these two roles are very hard to reconcile, and Seneca was a very complex man, and uh, that's why I find him such an interesting study.
0: Well, one of the things when I, I was reading up a little bit more about him uh, uh, for the show, and uh, one of the fascinating things about him is how he, how enduring he he has been throughout the history of the West – both among Christians and humanists, like everybody sort of saw something of, of, of themselves in him, it, you know, uh, from Tertullian. And then you get into the Middle Ages. He's 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 still got some space in the you know, in some Catholic thinkers. And then, of course, with the rise of humanism, with Erasmus and 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 later figures like Montaigne, and to and today, uh, everyone from Buddhists to uh, Tim Ferriss loves him. You know, it's like he, he, there's something in Seneca that seems almost, he seems like in, in some ways one of the most enduring thinkers in the West in terms of there's, at, at all these different phases of, of, of Western history, people have seen something in him that they could affirm that was still useful for them.
1: Yes, that's right. He's never been as popular as Marcus Aurelius, for example, or Plato, some of the other ancient philosophers that he himself um, was connected to. But um, he does have a very rich corpus. A lot of his work survives. A lot of it is very beautifully written. He was an extremely adept stylist and wordsmith. And uh, uh, then he also has a body of tragedies. We, We shouldn't neglect those. He wrote tragic drama in verse, as well as his philosophical works in prose, and many of those have survived, became very influential on Shakespeare.
0: Yeah, it's I mean an extraordinary guy. And when, of course one of the uh the elements that you that you mentioned was his relationship to to Stoicism. And um uh you know, I'd love to just hear a little bit of, about that. That's again one of these philosophical, let's call it a sensibility. Uh, or current that remains very um, lively for, for many uh, modern people in a way that a lot of other uh, ancient philosophies, even Plato, in a way, uh, has, is a little harder for the modern mind to wrap its head around in some ways, even despite the enormous influence on the whole philosophical mm-hmm. tradition uh, that comes out of that. Uh, th- there's something very um, kind of uh, recognizable uh, about Stoicism, and I, I'd be interested to hear how Seneca, uh, what his particular sort of contribution or way of framing Stoic ideas was. Let's say even in comparison with someone like Marcus Aurelius, whose meditations are, you know, as you know, m- more well known as, and and uh, as a source of spiritual solace, psycho- philosophical. Uh, thought and a kind of stoic embrace of of the limits um, and, you know, possibilities of existence. So how does Seneca fit into this kind of stoic line uh, in the ancient world?
1: So, uh, Stoicism took many different forms and Seneca's form um, uh, is one of the most um, diverse and wide-ranging. In fact, some of his ideas really aren't Stoic at all. He was willing to adapt uh, strains of thought from Platonism, from Epicureanism. He's really quite, um, uh, quite a heterodox thinker. Um, that can make him frustrating because he doesn't give you a party line, and he sometimes even contradicts himself. Um, but in general terms, uh, he brought Stoicism down to earth. Stoicism in the Greek world was a very high-minded philosophy, had, had a strong theoretical component. One had to understand things about physics and about um, uh, biology and mathematics. So it, it was really kind of an abstract philosophy, and he focused on the practical dimension, how it dictates everyday behavior, how one solves ethical problems so he's much more pragmatic thinker than the people who preceded him and and probably more so than Marcus Aurelius also
0: now was was uh, was that heterodoxy that kind of mixture of different influences uh, is that in, on display in his writings on death and dying is that a particular place where you can tease out these various influences or was it a, a very uh, pra- a prag another pragmatic expression of a of a stoic way of approaching that those questions.
1: Yes, his thinking about death is a great example of his refusal to take a party line. Um, The Stoics had a theory of death or a, a philosophy of death and especially of suicide. You were allowed to commit suicide under certain very restrictive conditions. But uh, Seneca took that much further and has numerous discussions of suicide, some of which make it seem almost like a virtue uh, under any circumstances, and others, which other discussions make it much more um, of an extreme measure. He seems to have had different thoughts about it at different times. And he allowed himself to follow those thoughts.
0: Yeah. Well, let's go into the suicide ones because that it's, uh, that's probably the, the most, uh, you know, disarming, uh, parts of the book where he's talking about, um, you know, the, the sort of the way in where he's celebrating the way in which suicide provides the opportunity for a kind of free freedom, a kind of, uh, 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 of an ability to still be autonomous, even in incredibly oppressive circumstances. So he has examples of, you know, slaves who like hurdle their, you know, their heads against the wall until their brains bash out as an example of how even in these, these terribly oppressive circumstances, there is some modicum of freedom provided by the possibility of of, of suicide. And you're like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah what what is it uh, you know is does suicide mean something different at that time what are the existing stoic ideas about suicide and then how how why is that such an important theme for him i mean it's a it's a significant thread in in your book it's one of the things that he talks about uh a lot and um what's going on with him uh with that particular concern
1: good so the times in which he lived are definitely Relevant to understanding his his obsession with suicide, the emperors used to force people to commit suicide rather than execute them. It was a standard procedure as a way of dealing with political enemies so that they would appear to have admitted their guilt in death and their death would not be as much of a blot on the emperor's record. So routinely people were asked to open their veins and uh, soldiers would stand around to make sure that they did so and uh, then the um, the victim would be allowed to pass on his property to his heirs that was the carrot that the emperor used to to enforce this system um, so Seneca had witnessed a lot of suicides and he himself eventually was forced to commit suicide by Nero and uh, that scene was recorded for us by tacitus and it forms the last chapter of my book of the book uh, how to die Um, so he was uh, thinking a lot more about suicide than we typically do today and he especially thought about it as a way to escape from oppression his the political system of his day had become an autocracy Uh, The emperor had the power of life and death and virtually no checks on his power. And uh, Caligula and Nero both became very cruel in their use of that power. So suicide became a means of escape for the uh, political class to which he belonged that was suffering from severe stress and oppression under... uh, the bad emperors.
0: Well, it may, you know, it's, it's one can't help read this material and want to try to pull uh, contemporary value out of it. I think it's one of the interesting things about cer- certain ancient philosophers, or just philosophers in, in, in general, is that you can read them historically. Oh, look, this is someone who's operating in this time and thinking these thoughts based on their time, but there's uh, this uh, kind of an inherent pragmatism. We want to go, okay, how does this help us clarify some of the things that we're wrestling with, uh, today? Because obviously, particularly with uh, some stoic thought, uh, there, there are some real, uh, guideposts there. I'm curious just in your own thinking or, you know, becoming aware of some of the issues around, um, end of life, I- uh, issues around s- uh, assisted suicide today, you know, the, the, the conflicts, the, You know, on the one hand, concerns about the state being involved in the process of 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 uh, ending a life on the one hand, on the other hand, the kind of uh, ability to, to craft one's own demise and to to exit the situation when it becomes intolerable and to decide beforehand when that point of intolerability is and be able to choose to do that. And there's obviously some conflict there. And then you get into all the issues of, like, what is an end of life? You know, what is a ve- vegetative body, uh, brain death? Is brain death actually death? Not really. It's sort of death. But, you know, there's a lot of these crazy, confusing Uh, emotionally in-charged issues around uh, particularly assisted uh, dying. Do you think that that Seneca helps clarify things today? And if so, what are the aspects of his thought on suicide that that seem relevant uh, to us?
1: Yeah, well, you mentioned assisted suicide, um, which is being debated in many state legislatures now. And Several states have actually adopted measures where someone who's terminally ill can um, sign a, a kind of declaration or, or can be vetted by doctors to make sure that uh, they're making a sound decision and then they're able to procure uh, a, an easy death rather than suffer through to the, to the last And Seneca discusses that very case because he saw some friends who went through long, painful, terminal illnesses. And he's actually um, rather undecided about whether one should take one's life in that situation. Um, So he doesn't give us uh, a clear path uh, towards a, a policy of assisted suicide. But he does force one to to think about all the ramifications um, the trade off between um, facing bravely whatever pain the illness has in store for you being kind of uh, uh you know um, stoic with a small s and determined to to put up with any kind of discomfort versus um uh, the courage that it takes to end one's own life. Um, he weighed those two kinds of bravery in the balance, and he couldn't really make up his mind which was which was preferable. But yeah, I mean, uh, that, that's, go ahead. It's a very tricky matter. You know, you talked about a case that you have experienced recently with one of your friends, and we've all experienced the death of friends or family at some time or other. Um, My uh, stepfather is an interesting case in point where he suffered a stroke in his 80s, which left him largely paralyzed. And at the time when he had the stroke and it became clear that he wasn't going to recover, he was sure that he was going to commit suicide within a matter of months. But he got used to the condition. He got a lot of joy out of the life that he had, which was basically just reading books, um, and he ended up living seven years. And at the end, would would never have dreamed of shortening his life. So it's hard to assess, you know, uh, from a distance or when when we're healthy, um, what it will actually feel like to be in a. A dire illness, or or be greatly debilitated. We may think that that's a situation that calls for um, an early exit, but when we get there, it may not be that way.
0: Yeah, and and not even just because we have fear. I mean, that seems to be that was something that was that opened my eyes. Th- thinking about the exact scenario you're talking about, about how your cri- the criteria is going to is going to change based on your changing capacities and your changing experience of the world. And I think before I had sort of an, uh, maybe an idea that that was, you know, you're just basically going to be afraid and so you're going to hold on as long as you possibly can. But that, I think that's, that's much too simplistic that, that part of the changing criteria is recognizing that one can have a rich life within very constrained circumstances being bedridden or, uh, you know, spending a lot of time out of it or whatever it is, uh, that there is just something, you know, inherently precious about being a, of consciousness of experiencing life. And so even in very limited situations, so it, it, it sort of throws all of our, of all of our axioms. And that's, that's partly why, um, you know, externally defined definitions of, of death or when death should be, should be, you know, uh, affected. Are very hard to uh, to really stand, you know, to stand on. So it's it's quite a quite a shift. You know, uh, another thing that 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 came up with with my friend that's also something that, that I that struck me in in reading how how to die and in, in, in reading Seneca, is the importance he places on modeling your beha- on your behavior as a moral or ethical model for others, hmm. and that is something that in a way is some of some of the most basic elements of of ethics. And it's something that is really kind of far from a lot of contemporary ideas, even arguments about what is ethical. They're often about what you do or don't do. But there's something about the ability to sort of like model courage in the face of death. Like one of the reasons to one of the philosophical reasons to be courageous in the face of death is not just to honor yourself and to honor your own capacities to look at this stuff head on, but to model this for others, for others to see that. And that was what was so extraordinary about my friend's passing that I had completely not expected was she was really so remarkable that it changed everybody and everything there. And now we all kind of know that that you can do that. You can be that way and in the right circumstances. For 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 Seneca, what is it about that aspect of moral behavior uh, uh, that you're actually showing? You're kind of encouraging people, almost almost seducing people into the philosophical life. Um, yeah. That is a very interesting aspect to what he's up to.
1: Yes, he has a gallery of heroic deaths that um, are each meant to show us a different kind of model. Of uh, uh, courage or cowardice or of acceptance uh, versus uh, uh, kind of cowardly um, clinging on to life um, and that's one of his best strategies as a uh, as a writer is to employ these very colorful very vivid anecdotes of um, deaths or um, um, lingering long lingering deaths or or short violent deaths he has all kinds of death um, sometimes it gets a little oppressive, but uh the, he's a good enough storyteller that he really captures our um our attention. One of my favorite ones is uh his story of Julius Conus, who was a Roman centurion uh under Caligula, um, unjustly sentenced to die and When the centurion came to um, take him to the executioner's block, he was playing at a board game with one of his fellow prisoners. And uh, on leaving the room, he turned to the guard and said, you're my witness. I was ahead by one. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So disdainful of death that uh, all he cared about was to, uh, uh, to have an accurate record that he was winning the game.
0: Well, that's interesting. You you use that phrase disdain. And there's a there's a there's a kind of power that comes from disdaining death while not denying it. And that that's a very interesting place to be where on the you know, there's so much, you know, I I would say in general, America is a kind of death denial culture. It's always about expanding the self. You can get more. There's always, uh, you know, pot of gold around the corner you can you know self-help never stops we're like always sort of improving you know that now we we we're seeing you know the the sort of uh the 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 autumn years are becoming like populated with all lots of images of you know success and energy and sexuality and da da da, da. so it's like we're kind of at, you know death denial culture in some ways but accepting death doesn't just mean like a, kind of like Somberly taking on the inevitable loss of everything that you love and everything that you know That's part of the picture. Sure, but there's also once you sort of acknowledge that death is in the room all the time And has been since you were born. It's always sitting there. It's always in the room There you, you there's a kind of relationship that, that that Develops that has in it something like disdain or like yeah, whatever or okay yeah. at some point but I, I you know it, I don't want I'm not gonna let this de- Determine what I do I'm not going to act let's say out of fear of death exclusively you know when you have an option where like the the more moral thing to do or the more uh, courageous or desirable thing to do involves a high risk of death versus not doing it you don't want to not do it just because you're you're afraid of dying so you want to have a kind of disdain there too so it's this weird mixture of like that I sense in in Seneca between respect and and a kind of diffidence hmm is that a, is that a personal thing do you think with him or is it a philosophical position
1: I think it's mostly a philosophical position it's interesting that in his own life he um, didn't choose to risk his life or to commit suicide at various points where he could have done a lot of good for Rome if he'd opposed Nero, or if he'd spoken up, frankly, in the Senate, things that would have put him in jeopardy, he chose not to do. So he didn't exactly practice what he preached. um, But um, at the same time, he was a very powerful rhetorician, and he's able to convince us um, of how we should feel, uh, even if he didn't set the best example himself
0: well how do you deal with that that uh you know difference there i mean some people look at seneca and go look he's just a he's just a rhetorician he's just a a blowhard he's just interested in politics and accruing wealth and so he had a good line and people bought it but look if you actually look at the he's a hypocrite is so is like that's the strong version of it um, and at the same time, you know, there's always something in philosophy and articulation and ethical discussions where we're positing ways of being that we recognize are good or worthwhile. And at the same time that we may not reach it, we may not reach it personally. The people listening to it may not be able to achieve that. But that doesn't mean it's not valid as a position or, or as a call. Well, how do you see him in the end? You know, you spend a lot of time with him. You've written a couple books about him. Um, do you? How do you see? Do you, is he a conflicted guy? Is he a bit of a hypocrite? Uh, is he just doing his best? Uh, is is he someone who managed to channel wisdom that he was not himself always able to live up to? How, how do you see that uh, tension in his life?
1: Yeah, I think your last formulation is a pretty good one. He, he was able to channel wisdom that he couldn't live up to. He is often compared to Socrates in the Greek world. And in fact, the only portrait bust that we have of Seneca is a double bust, which shows his head back to back with the head of Socrates. So someone was trying to compare the two um, when they carved the bust. Um, He knew that he was an imperfect human being. He knew that he was not a sapiens, a wise man, which is the Stoic code word for a, a perfect master uh someone who would always live by stoic principles. Um, he knew he was no Socrates and uh he still managed to write very movingly of the aspiration to to be a uh, a wise man. And uh, uh there's something very moving about that. He he recognized his own imperfections and uh still decided to uh, to try to express his highest ideals for others to follow,
0: and and then how does this play out in, in what we know about his actual death? I mean, maybe you can you can talk about the political circumstances and uh, the, you know it's in, it's in, at the one account is at the end of your book, um, but just what we know about that and, and how that maybe even just for you personally as someone who's been wrestling with this guy um, gives you an insight about uh, about him um, in terms of how he he faced his own. Uh, conscious suicide
1: yes well the link to Socrates is is very clear there because he actually had stored up a quantity of hemlock which is the same poison that Socrates took when he was condemned to death by the Athenians Uh, it's a poison that numbs you and and sort of paralyzes you Uh, and uh, that scene is played out in uh, Plato's work, The Phaedo, we see Socrates actually growing numb and, and dying after drinking the hemlock. And his last words are that um, he owes a sacrifice to Asclepius, the god of healing, because his death was actually a kind of uh, escape from, from his body and therefore a, a healing. So he thought he would be able to imitate that kind of death, Uh, In the end, he didn't, and his death got very messy and protracted, as it's described by Tacitus. Um, It started when he was accused by Nero of taking part in a conspiracy against Nero's life, which was led partially by Seneca's nephew, uh, a poet named Lucan. So Seneca was doubtless aware of it, but we can't say for sure that he did or didn't participate. It's very unclear. But he was linked to it by Nero, and um, the soldiers were sent to surround him and uh, force him to take his own life. And uh, he started off by slicing his veins open, which is interesting that he had the poison but chose first to uh, to do something much more painful, and violent to himself, and his wife, interestingly, asked to commit suicide with him, and so she also opened her veins, and then, mysteriously, uh, the blood didn't flow out fast enough to kill him, so he then asked for the poison and drank it, but that also didn't work, so uh, after several hours of pain and suffering, he finally um, dragged himself into a hot steam room, a vapor bath and, uh, suffocated to death.
0: Man, what an ordeal.
1: Yes, it was. It was quite an ordeal. And, uh, uh, Tacitus presents it almost as a black comedy that, uh, you know, the guy just couldn't die, uh, after all his years of speculating about death and suicide. So, um, it's played almost uh, for grim humor, but um, I think that in the end he um, would have been happy with his death because he did uh, suffer. He thought that suffering and death was an a ennobling experience, that it brought you a kind of um, heroism, um, and uh, it was entirely voluntary. The uh, soldiers never intervened. So, he is- what
0: what do you th- what do, what about the mysterious not taking the poison and, and going for the for the slicing the veins? Do you, yeah, do you have any uh, any any gut feelings on, on that one? That's an interesting move after all that preparation.
1: Yes, it is. Yeah, there too. I think that um, he saw the uh, the pain of the blade uh, as a kind of nobility one of his own personal heroes who he describes whose death he describes numerous times in his writings is a roman senator who preceded him by about a century by the name of Cato and Cato disembowelled himself in a very gruesome way uh after losing a major battle and then when the doctors came and sewed him up and tried to save him He ripped open the stitches and killed himself a second time, essentially. Uh, And Seneca describes that death very glowingly. So I think he wanted to suffer in a similar way, show a similar kind of determination.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. You know, thinking about also, you know, his, his attitudes, we have to see them in relationship to his uh, his understanding of how an individual human life fit into the larger cosmos. I mean, we always have a cosmology. We, there's no way out. You know, we if we're Christian, we think we're going to heaven or we will be judged. You know, if we're uh, atheists, we think we just go into the earth and there's no consciousness. If we're Buddhist, you know, other things happen. There's always some kind of model of how of what happens next and how that then informs flows back and informs the way we look at death while we're still alive. What was his sort of view of the cosmos and how did that influence his his attitude towards towards death and dying?
1: Yes, so he talks several times about rejoining the universe, becoming the original particles from which you were formed and and having your your matter rejoin the the uh, world of nature, uh, which is a very epicurean view uh, the other school that was popular this time was heavily focused on on the idea of atoms being made up of atoms that are indestructible and therefore will uh, just come back in some other form and in, in some other configuration um, but he also occasionally talks about an afterlife he doesn't reject the idea that the soul is immortal and that it might go to some otherworldly place after death It might have consciousness might be able to look down on the earth and see what's happening he describes um, souls doing that in a couple of his works so he's not totally out of tune with the christian idea of heaven but he he's does he, he doesn't idea. really
0: hold on to it, right? It's not like uh, he's got a fixed idea. This is what happens to the soul.
1: No, he has no fixed idea, um, and he's he's sometimes uh, very scientific about it. That it will simply be nothingness, and therefore will be will be in the same condition that we were before we were born, when we had no consciousness and and no existence. Um, but at other times, he, he seems to talk about a, uh, an afterlife. He, did, he wasn't dogmatic about it. The one thing he was sure about was that there was no hell. There was no place of punishment where uh, the soul would be tortured. So there was nothing to fear from death. One, one would never experience it as a pain after death.
0: Right, that's that's the in a way uh, the 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 thing that's coming up right now. We have about uh, ten minutes left. Is is that fearlessness? And again, it was something in my and my friend that it was really remarkable. And I've been spending a lot of time just thinking about like what was it in her life? What was it in her temperament? What was it in her understanding of the world? Her experiences, the things she chose to f- focus on. Where can I find that fearlessness? Because even though I spend a lot of time thinking about this, probably more than your your average bear. Uh, and have, you know, tried to bring a sense of courage to it. I can still be very terrified of, of these processes. I think most of us can relate with that. Um, and so when you think about Seneca's fearlessness, uh, to the degree that he actually had it and wasn't just presenting a good model, but you know, that, that, that was part of his, um, upright relationship with death, uh, where does that come from? Is it, can you get there philosophically? Can can people get can you can you read this sort of uh, arguments for why you should not have fear? You know, you're just going to go back to the place you came from anywhere. You know, that happens to everybody that whatever, the, all the kinds of arguments that are that are laid out very clearly and, and concisely in the way that you've edited this. Um, do you think that can work, that that we can become fearless that way? Or is it almost more of a temperamental thing? Like some people are just terrified. Some people have, are, are are courageous. Uh, what, what do you think?
1: You know, I'm not sure what I think about that. I I think there is an element of temperament in it. Um, But Seneca certainly believed that we could use our reason to convince ourselves not to be afraid. We could rehearse certain arguments and we could accustom ourselves to the idea of death. We could study death, as he puts it, and just get more familiar with it so that it's not so terrifying. So I, I think it's a mixture of the two. Uh, like there's probably certain natural limits to what one can achieve based on one's nature, but within those limits one, one can uh, make progress towards uh, the kind of serenity that that Seneca is is urging on us.
0: Yeah. And it seems to me that that's where st- we're studying death is something that we can do. That's something that even if we don't know where the outcome will be either for us or uh, you know, we we do not necessarily have a goal, we can invite those questions into our lives. And when that when we have no choice but to look at it, especially with with, you know, friends and, and, and family and then, you know, ultimately our own situation, which is always the case, that by inviting those questions in, it, it feels like just that familiar that familiarity alone shifts the story somewhat um that even if we can't achieve fearlessness or we can't achieve uh his an, another call you have there is to have no regrets you know if you go early you go early it's not that long no matter how you slice it you know uh quality is better than quantity which is a very important thing for us to think about That's one thing we didn't really uh, talk about is he's very clear on, on on thinking in terms of the quality of life versus the quantity of life and how indeed how Crass and kind of ignorant it is to think of it in terms of quantity And yet the kinds of choices that so many people face at the end of their lives is like is like, you know Trading quality for quantity as promised by this massive, you know uh, uh, Medical machine that, by the way, is also extracting all of your resources as it's doing this. And, you, you know, you're 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 dealing with your family just at the point when you're realizing that you could actually maybe help them by not spending all your savings to extend your, uh, a, a kind of crappy life for another month, maybe, you know, and, and tons of people are in that question all the time. And that was another place where I was like, yeah, we could hear some <laughs> we could hear some Seneca lore here, too, you know. Yeah. Uh, but because all this stuff is there, we really we really got to we got to got to look at it.
1: Yes, indeed. You know, people used to in the Renaissance uh, keep skulls on their on their desks and their bureaus. You know, it was like you wanted to just constantly remind yourself that that's where you're going. But we don't do that anymore. We want to shield ourselves and keep death in the, in the hospice ward and, and let the doctors and nurses deal with it. So, um, yeah, we live in a different kind of society, and denial of death is very strong.
0: When you teach this stuff, uh, do you kind of approach the classroom situation as a way to actually – to really grapple with the issues directly rather than, you know, you know, there's always the tendency is is scholarship to, you put things in historical context. You show how the thinker relates to other thinkers. You sort of analyze the complexities And and we, and that's all fascinating stuff. It's, it's delicious. I love history. I love these questions, but sometimes it can be a way to avoid the capacity of the text before us to ask us directly, and to engage us philosophically and and existentially where we where we sit I'm curious whether i mean obviously by putting out a book like this you you believe that that's that's true for Seneca that these things can speak directly to us to broader readerships but I'm curious whether you bring that into the into the classroom
1: yes i do i do actually and i'm I'm fortunate to teach at Bard, which is a very um uh intuitive institution it it uh, likes to talk to the gut of the students and relate things to their own lives it's it's not a very um, abstract sort of you know ivory tower institution so um, we have a program in which we read these philosophical works and and they really are practical philosophy we try to use them as a guide to the good life.
0: It's actually kind of ironic, you know, it seems like, I mean, there's always been a sort of a little place for, you know, the, how ancient wisdom can, you know, inform your life today. You know, it's always been part of modernity, that kind of looking back. Uh, but it does seem that there's more space now, that there actually is room in the popular world for uh, a kind of re-engagement you know, with with these thinkers or, you know, or, or both philosophically in terms of science, et cetera. Um, and the but the irony then is the fact that that classics departments that the actual, you know, capital S scholarship around classics are being hit as hard as as any branch of the of the humanities. So the, it, it seems to be there's there's a weird question that culture-wide we're asking, just you know, outside, you know, both inside and outside the university, of what is the value of continuing to pay attention to these things that were written thousands of years ago. How do you see that working now? How do you see the role of classics changing, or what's, the, what's the, your, your hopeful scenario for how we can still be informed culture-wide uh, by some of these, these thinkers and, and histories?
1: well the um the kind of message that uh, seneca is sending is is probably more at home in a philosophy program than um uh, classics per se um i mean i i teach seneca as a as a language teacher i teach him in latin and uh, try to get my students reading him in the original um but um i think um you know, philosophy has as big a role to play as classics in bringing these texts into our uh, our modern world. Um, uh, classics is is under the opprobrium in uh, the modern institution of uh, um, being about dead white males, and uh, you know this is a topic for another discussion. But um, our our future is is getting dimmer by the day because of uh, Um, uh, identity um, politics in education and students want to study things from their own background or from their own ethnic or racial group and unfortunately the greeks and romans don't correspond to anyone's (laughs) ideas about their identity Um, so uh, you know what i like about the classics is that it transcends those issues it's it's universal and uh... Or at least for the West, it's universal, and um, uh, we all share in it equally because none of us are ancient Greeks or Romans.
0: <laughs> that that that's certainly the case. What uh, um, what what else do you see yourself doing in relationship? Are you are you working on more books that will will go out to a, a popular uh, audience?
1: Yes, indeed. I have another volume in this same series that How to Die came out in, called um, How to Manage Anger. Which is also from Seneca, from a work of his called De Ira about anger, and uh, it's practical philosophy from from the Stoic tradition about um, how to uh, keep yourself from from getting destroyed by rage. Uh, certainly, a very timely um, issue for for our politics today. And down the road, I have a, a third one that uh, um, may come out in the same series about um, generosity, how to how to give and receive. So Seneca is a wealth of uh, of these sort of issues, practical ethical issues.
0: And do you, and do you sense that there's more hunger for these kinds of uh, pragmatic philosophical reflections uh, in terms of people's readers demand uh, reviews do you have a sense of that
1: yes I think there is you see it in the huge demand for Marcus Aurelius Um, his meditations is almost always the top-selling book from the ancient world on Amazon and uh, uh, people look to him as a guide to life because he was in the political world he was a, a real person dealing with real problems and yet uh looking for a spiritual dimension to uh to the problems he faced and uh you know stoicism has been revived as a uh, a living philosophy so um i think that uh the um you know the modern west has uh, uh has become disillusioned with a lot of the uh things that we thought that we wanted um, material prosperity hasn 't made us happy uh, un- unlimited freedom hasn 't made us happy so I think we're looking for other ways to find happiness
0: well I think we're going to have to wrap it up there and uh, i think you you've done a, you've done a fine job of uh of, of providing some alternatives uh how to die an ancient guide to the End of Life uh, by Seneca, edited and translated by James Rom, out on Princeton University Press, a, a fine item. And I look forward to uh, how to deal with anger. <laughs> Again, a very timely topic. Um, it's funny how these uh, basic human things are timely. So, James, thanks so much for joining us on Expanding Mind.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's been a very interesting conversation. Great. All right, folks,
0: uh, until next week, keep your minds open.